This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In this program, we're asking the question, is Michael Roundtree a wackadoodle prophet? Probably. You're watching The Remnant Radio, a show where we tackle history, theology, and the gifts of the Spirit. My name is Joshua Lewis. I'm the pastor of King's Fellowship in Ada, Oklahoma, together with my friends Michael Miller at Reclamation Church Denver and Michael Roundtree at Bridgeway Church OKC. We set aside time every week to discuss the gifts of the Spirit. Things like, how should we pray for the sick? And how do we interpret tongues? And should we believe all the prophetic words for the new year? If you're looking for a charismatic podcast with practitioners who are actually doing the stuff, this is the show for you. Okay, as you know, we're going to make sure on our promise. Is he a wackadoodle prophet? We'll find out today in this program. If you don't know what that is, a reference to, we are responding to a YouTube video posted on Justin Peters ministry. I have such a hard time not calling Justin Peters Jordan Peterson. Uh, Very different people. Uh, so if you at any time hear me talking about Jordan and you're like, who is Josh talking about? I'm trying to say Justin, but for whatever reason, I've had this problem since I've listened to both of these individuals. I can't, can't say their names right. So, uh, he released a video with Chris Roseborough responding to a short clip that came out of a much longer video on Jeremiah 32, uh, in that video, Roseborough, as, as he often does with both fair and just weights, calls Michael Roundtree a false prophet wackadoodle, <laughs> just like the prophets of Jeremiah 32 Tuesday. Which, you know, which, I, I want to be fair. No, let me be I, fair. I think, no, I, let, me, <laughs> let me be fair, because I'll be fair first, and then you can be fair. To be fair, I think it's nicer than the last thing he said about you, which is that you worship a false god, that you're a false prophet, and uh, a false teacher. Right. Like, I, I think that's probably better because you signed the, the prophetic standard statement. And he said, anyone who signs this document believes in a false God, uh, prophesy is a false prophet and, and is a false teacher, teaches falsely. So uh, on that note, I'll turn it over to you, Roundtree, to be fair. <laughs> my to be fair was, yes, he did use my name, but he then threw in the remnant guys. So y'all uh y'all are also in the wackadoodle prophet categories yes and, but uh, michael of all the idiot villages in all the world you stand alone is what my it's what Rosborough right. is saying that's right he's saying that because uh he can remember your name roundtree is a hard name to forget uh, josh lewis is the most white bread anglo-saxon name he just can't remember yeah. what my name is yep. which is fine that's cool well, i wish he threw shade at me as hard as he threw shade at you michael it's really it's really my problem uh, Miller, do you have anything you want to say? Your mic, your mic is muted. You're, you're chuckling over there. Yeah. Uh, sorry about that. No, no, I got nothing to say. I'm, I'm looking forward to the content. I think, uh, I, I think of the, uh, the line, <laughs> what does he say? Uh, from the princess bride. I don't think this means what you think it means. That's kind of how I feel about this, uh, passage and what we're about to discuss. So we'll see what happens. I, I the quote that comes to my mind, and we'll get into this in a second is it's, 
it's what the meaning of is is that's that's the quote that i'm thinking of that that is also an okay so uh should we just dive in let let me let me start on the front end i know these people are not very charitable to us but i want to be charitable to them and to be fair i think justin was very nice to us he was kind you know he said in the video i think this is well intentioned i think roseboro is probably on the the maybe heavier handed side when it comes to responding to uh youtube people that he disagrees with so uh on the front end i think chris roseboro uh and uh just Justin, I'm going I'm to try really hard not to say Jordan. I think both of them uh, are, are believers. I'm going to treat them as such. I, I'm concerned with the heavy-handedness from Roseboro, as always, uh, the kind of constant scoffing that takes place on his channel, the manipulations of people's faces, the distortions of them to make them look kind of inferior, the constant you know, talking down to individuals. It's one thing to correct. It's one thing to speak truth and love. Uh, but like the kind of cartoonatures and, and mocking and those kinds of things, granted, they're funny, uh, but I don't know that they represent Christ likeness. I just want to admit that. You guys seen the video where he did the strong bad? Uh, everybody, you know, Dr. Brown yeah, does it's definitely funny. It's so yeah. good, man. It's it's funny, but it's not okay. You shouldn't do it. But Josh, uh, you have a good strong bad. Now, a lot of our viewers probably have no idea who strong bad is, but that was good, bro. <laughs> I, just, a good- <laughs> I just showed my kids that video. It's like, uh, can you guys say, can you say Christopher Columbus? Uh, or no, the chief, and then one of the kids said Christopher Columbus, and then he goes F minus minus stupid children, and then my kids have been saying that all week. F minus minus stupid children. Okay, so also maybe not a good biblical example of leadership. Uh, should we dive into clip one before I incriminate myself any further in a strong bad voice? <laughs> yeah, yes. let's do it. Okay. So those are the guys over at the Remnant Radio YouTube channel program, and they put up that short clip, what they call shorts. I've never made a short, but anyway, that's what it was. And it was a a very novel pushback against what we as cessationists have long said, that uh, when God speaks, he speaks with crystal clear clarity. There is no confusion as to what he is saying, nor is there confusion as to who it is who is saying it. And uh, they point to Jeremiah 32, verse 8, to say that Jeremiah himself, uh, the prophet Jeremiah, was uh, unsure that the word of the Lord he received was indeed the word of the Lord. So that kind of sets us up today. Do y'all want to kind of explain what the contents of the clip says? I mean, ultimately, there is this quotation from Jeremiah 32. One of you should probably read it, uh, talking about the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. Uh, he was told to go uh, purchase a field, uh, redeem a field, uh, an Anathoth. Uh, his cousin comes to him, and then he says, then he knew it was the Lord. That's the kind of clip that they're responding to. That's what Justin says on the front end here. He calls it novel, but it's probably good that we probably introduce right. the clip by, by actually reading the the passage and explaining what we said in the video and what we believe about this passage. Is one of you guys want to jump in there? Sure. I mean, I'm I'm a wackadoodle, so don't I don't really read the Bible very much, but you know, let's try. You certainly right, don't well, read it in Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, uh, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth. Uh, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, buy my field as at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And so the point that I was making in this short that he mentioned was the uh, significance of that final statement. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord in verse 8, because in verse 6, he begins by the word of the Lord came to me. And so it seems as though, I think the language I used in the clip was that after the experience played out, I said, then he knew that 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 this was the word of the Lord. Or to put it another way, it was uh, his prophetic uh, intimation or impression, if you want to use that language, 
the revelation was confirmed uh, as the events played out. And so uh, point being that um, prophecy is not necessarily as crystal clear as, say, events actually playing out. And so um, Justin called this a novel interpretation of Jeremiah 32, 8. Um, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Uh, but we would contend it's actually not novel. This has been around for a long time. In fact, uh, someone who uh, Justin Peters and I both respect a lot, John Calvin, shares the same interpretation. Uh, although John Calvin was a cessationist, but here's what he says about this verse. He says, as to the end of this verse, it may seem strange that the prophet says that he now knew that the word came from God, for if he before doubted, where would be the certainty as to the prophetic spirit? Uh, he had already received a vision. He ought to have embraced what he knew had been foretold to him from above, even without any hesitation. But it appears that he was in suspense and perplexity. It then seems an evidence of unbelief that he did not put a full and entire trust in God's testimony and was not fully persuaded as to the heavenly oracle until he saw the whole thing really accomplished. Uh, gosh, we have a big, long quote there. I'm not going to quote the whole wait thing. Wait a second. Calvin, are you a wackadoodle? Josh. No, I'm just Sorry. <laughs> For those of you who are listening and not watching, Josh is holding a John Calvin bust, which I also have behind me right here. That's, it's my, it's my I icon. Have nothing, I have it's nothing approved, behind me. Approved Stop, Protestant yeah. icons, John Calvin. <laughs> Okay, what, yeah, what other so, scholars have said the same thing, Michael? Yeah, okay. So um, we have G. Campbell Morgan. I mean, he was a famous Reformed preacher that I also... Uh, Justin and I are both Reformed, um, and uh, at least uh, Reformed Calvinist. And, uh, and so G. Campbell Morgan was that. Uh, famous preacher at Westminster, uh, ran Westminster Chapel. He says, The impressive fact as to Jeremiah that he was obedient, even though perplexed. He became certain when Hananiah came and urged him to buy. He had heard the word of Jehovah already, but evidently was not sure that it was his word. When the offer came to him, he was made sure. It would seem that the word of the Jehovah came to him as an impression, as so often comes to us. We often have impressions which seem to be from the Lord. Let us rest assured that what he commands, he will make possible, etc. And then he kind of goes on. Um, yeah, so there you have G. Campbell Morgan saying the same thing that we just said. Uh, so these are two reform guys. So, and, and they were from a good while ago. I mean, John Calvin centuries ago, G Campbell Morgan from, uh, earlier in the 20th century. Uh, so Miller, you want to hear, uh, or you want to read from Jameson Fawcett and Brown, three Bible scholars who collaborated on a very well-known Bible commentary. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. It says, uh, Jameson Fawcett and Brown. Here's what they have to say. It says not that Jeremiah previously doubted the reality of divine communication, but the effect following it and the prophets experimentally knowing it confirmed his faith and was the seal to his vision. So again, this is, this is the, the crazy thing to me is when you use the word novel to describe something we said, and yet we pull in a lot of people from history are going, okay, well, what's novel? The fact that we agree with these others or that you've just never heard it before. Cause I think that's what is Peter's definition of novelty is here. Uh, we've also got William Smith, who is a lexicographer. Now, when we say the word lexicographer, what that means is this, this person doesn't just know Hebrew and Greek or other languages. These are the definitive authorities. They write lexicons because they know not just the Hebrew, but the history of these Hebrew words and where they came from. So here's what William Smith says. Why would he want to redeem a field that is already under Babylon control? 
So when the Lord spoke to him and said, now buy the field tomorrow, Hanamel, your, your cousin is going to come and ask you to buy his father's field for the right of redemption is yours. Go ahead and buy it. He thought, man, is this me? Surely this can't be the Lord telling me this until when Hanamel came in and said, hey, my father wants you to redeem the field. The right of redemption is yours. Then I knew it was the Lord saying, but he still didn't know. He still was troubled by the thing. Why in the world does God want me to do it? But he went ahead in obedience. I, I don't understand how it is. Uh, I mean, you've got so many others and another person who's a Hebrew scholar, which I think that part of the contention here is uh, Rosebro saying these guys clearly don't know Hebrew. And we're coming to this conclusion. Well, we're not the only ones. Again, this is not a novelty that we're saying this. This is also historical. Yeah, he told us that we should probably, you know, check out some good commentaries. So we did. We read we Calvin and yeah. a bunch of bunch of other guys that agreed. Roundtree, did you say you, you read twelve commentaries that generally agree with us on this? I read about twelve. Yes, and honestly, a number of them didn't comment on it at all. Uh, the this sampling, and there were more, uh, did indicate that uh, they sided with us. The only one that I could find that definitively sided with Rosebro was the one he quoted, uh, the one from Kyle and Dalich from the 19th century. And I agree with Rosebro. That is a respected commentary. I've read from it many times uh, and derived a lot of benefit from it. I, I think it's a, a solid commentary. Um, but uh, I, I would be curious how, how much support he finds in the commentaries because I wasn't able to find support for his view in the commentaries apart from that one instance. And I will say, I think Roseboro's imp interpretation of it actually is a fair one. I think it is a, uh, a biblically reasonable position to fall on. Uh, but I would also say ours is, and I would say ours is more supported yeah. uh, by the commentaries, by the context and by the Hebrew grammar. And we'll show mm -hmm. all of those things as we progress. Now, Josh, I know you had a comment on just novelty itself to kind of go yeah. aside from this. Yeah. Uh, Peter, Peter goes out of his way and says, Hey, you know, uh, this is a novel interpretation. I just want to remind all of our viewers that the cessationist position, you know, he says it's novel to me. It's not novel, you know, to, to us cessationists. Uh, I would just remind the viewers that the cessationists are the novel ones. Um, we have gone through our uh, responding to the cessationist documentary and documented time and time again. Uh, you can go watch uh, responding to cessationist video three and video four. In both of those, at the end of three and basically all the way through four, we go through um, the supernatural activity of the early church uh, from the days that Jesus ascended into heaven. We obviously go through the New Testament. There's no mention of any gifts ceasing. And then you jump into the, the history uh, of like, you know, 70 AD to 144, supernatural signs, wonders, and miracles. We cover uh, the misuse of Augustine. We cover uh, the early church patristics. We cover all the way through the medieval period. We cover uh, the Protestant Reformation and how uh, the, the sky we go through the Scotsworthy's book and talk about the, the Presbyterian reformers during the Protestant Reformation who saw healings, who prophesied, who prayed for the sick. A crazy demonstration. We talk about the French Camisards who were prophesying in France. We talked about 
the activities of Martin Luther and John Calvin. We talked about what happened uh, with with individuals like Charles Spurgeon, who saw more people healed uh, in all of Europe and North America than any doctor. Uh, we walked through the, the biographies of these individuals. We, we looked at guys like Jonathan Edwards. The supernatural activity that's been taking place through the church age uh, has been happening since Jesus ascended into heaven. Every other position has been a novelty. It's been unique. Uh, the idea well, that the gifts of the spirit have ceased started with John Calvin was compounded by Middleton and then finished by B.B. Warfield. And basically the same old arguments that were formulated during that period have been regurgitated, even though charismatic scholars have responded to them time and time again. Let's just be fair and be frank. And on the front end, tell the viewer, remind them it's actually cessationism. That's novel. Wait, uh, Josh, hold on. I'll push back just a little bit because you remember we did an interview with Ken Johnson maybe a month ago, a month and a half ago where he said that there were other cessationists that's not entirely novel to the you know western rationalistic french enlightenment sect of the church uh it also was prevalent among the sadducees isn't that correct didn't ken johnson say that it was that group of rabbinic judaism that was yes. also cessationist that that's uh, correct and and jesus responds to them in the scriptures right. when they're trying to stump him saying you know neither the scriptures you, you can't understand this because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. So it yeah, is true. Uh, let's also that, keep in mind that the Sadducees <laughs> were heretics. They didn't also, in you know, they, they did That's know not... Hebrew, though. Anyway, um, neither here nor there. Uh, I'm only saying this to say that uh, the, the, this, whole, this whole argument uh, to say, one, cessationism was popularized by Calvin and B.B. Warfield and Middleton. And certainly there were fringe groups that would hold to cessationism. Uh, in the cessation documentary, they quoted one guy in the East, but you're going to have a hard time scratching together a bunch of documentation through the early church. I mean, we've we've asked uh, cessationist scholars such as like um, Dr. Spiegel, you know, hey, uh, he's, he's a Calvinistic cessationist. Hey man, do you believe that the vast majority of early church guys were Calvinistic? He goes, no, it's probably, you know, 50-50 mix, majority being uh, kind of Armenian, probably. So he's like, he's being honest with the data. And then he comes back and then says a similar thing to say, well, you know, when it comes to early church guys, when it comes to the gifts of the spirit, the vast majority uh, were continuationist. So he is not rooting his, his cessationism in church history because it's not there. You can't find it. Um, certainly, like Brown, Miller has said, there were uh, Sadducees who didn't believe in supernatural works. Uh, certainly there were uh, fringe groups of individuals, you know, here and there throughout church history who didn't believe in supernatural activity, but usually they're building that off of experience of not seeing it themselves, uh, such as Augustine early on. But once he started seeing miracles, his cessationism couldn't hold. Uh, one of you guys want to pick it up from here? Uh, <clears throat> sure, I can. Uh, hey, if you could pull up this comment by JB, he says, none of that suggests he didn't hear the prophecy accurately, which I thought was the point you were making. You could be wrong as a prophet. I feel like you're skirting that. Uh, listen, we've talked about this many times. We'll, we'll get to it a little bit later, but I do want to just say this. We never said Jeremiah missed it in this Jeremiah 32. What we did say is that the prophecy was unclear until it was, to borrow John Calvin's word, confirmed. It was confirmed after the event played out. We prophesy in faith, Romans 12. Faith is not the same thing as certainty. Faith means confidence in God. And, um, and so what we see throughout the scripture is the same sort of idea that prophecy can be cryptic. Miller, you have like a running list in your brain of these scriptures. You want to kind of rattle through some of them uh, that discuss the mysterious nature of prophecy? 
Yeah, sure. So you've got uh, Numbers 12 that comments about a difference between Moses and all other prophets. It says, with Moses, God speaks face to face. Not so with all the other prophets. With them, he speaks speaks in dreams or visions or dark sayings. The idea is that things these things are shrouded in mystery. Um, so there was a level with which Moses got to interact with God in absolute clarity as man speaks with man. Not the case with all the other prophets. Um, and then you've also got, and I don't have this in our show notes, but you've got Deuteronomy 34 that sort of compares the next prophet in the lineage of prophets over Israel, sort of the, the prophet leaders of Israel, uh, where he says of Joshua, says uh, with, with Moses, God spoke face to face, not so with Joshua. Since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom, Luthen, whom knew the Lord face to face. So again, the indication here is that there's not the same level of clarity with all the other prophets that came after Moses um, and, and or before and or contemporary to Moses. So there was a unique relationship that Moses had with God in that he had that kind of clarity. Uh, we've got 1 Samuel 3. Uh, you've got Job uh, 33, 14. It says, God speaks here one way, there another, though man may not perceive it. So, and that's a that's an interesting thing here because when you uh, have this particular example in Job, people say, "Well, you know, Job's friends say a lot of false things, things that aren't true." Well, that's not true of Elihu, the youngest guy who waits uh, to give his response to Job until the very end. He's also the only one who wasn't rebuked by God at the very end of the book. He's the one who, who if anything, is sort of commended because he actually has wisdom. Uh, this young man uh, recognizes, you know, hey. It, in a, in as, how do I say this? In juxtaposition to Job's friends who are rebuked, who say, "Hey, God doesn't speak. We know that you're never going to get your day in court, Job." And and you know, God's not going to speak to you, Job. And then Elihu goes, "No, no, no. God does speak. Here, one way, there another." So he also mentions like various ways, though man may not perceive it, which means man's not clear that it's God speaking to him. Um, and then it goes on from there and starts citing different ways that God speaks. So here you've got Job's friends. They don't think God speaks like this. And then you've got Elihu, the only friend who doesn't get rebuked, who does believe that. These guys end up being wrong. He ends up being right. Uh, we've also got John 12, a voice from heaven speaks. Uh, you know, he says, um, Jesus says the word, Father, glorify your name. And the voice from heaven speaks and says, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. And yet in this situation, you know, clearly it was God speaking. And yet some people just thought it was a voice of an angel. Others only heard it thunder. So lack of clarity here. Um, and then you guys have a few other examples. I'll let you jump in. Here, I can, I can just toss these up on screen so you guys can take a screenshot. God doesn't lie. We don't believe that God lies. The revelation that God gives is never fallible. Those are verses there. Numbers 23, 19, Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, 18. Uh, but God speaks. But at times when God speaks... Uh, people don't know exactly what God is speaking. The examples there is John chapter 12. It's not, we, they don't know that it's God that's speaking. Uh, Michael just quoted that verse in John 12 uh, and first Samuel three, Samuel doesn't know it's God speaking. He thinks it's Eli. So this is the per who is speaking. I'm not sure. Uh, but God often gives revelation in cryptic ways. We see in Genesis uh, 40 and 41, the, the cupbearer, the breadbearer, and Pharaoh don't know what their dreams mean. That's God communicating to them, but there's some kind of interpretive process that requires uh, their interpretation of those dreams. Uh, in Numbers 12, 6 through 8, we quoted this earlier, speaks to Moses face to face with other prophets with riddles. Job 33, 14. Michael also quoted that one. Prophets receive true revelation from God, but don't know what that revelation 
Revelation means at times, such as Daniel 8, 27, uh, John, again, 12, 29 through 36, the, the same verses we quoted earlier. They didn't know what was being said because they couldn't hear what was being said, even though it was audible. Also, Acts ten seventeen, Peter's perplexed by the vision, uh, and prophets receive true revelation but misapply it, as seen in Acts twenty one four, as they urged uh, in the spirit uh, that Paul not go to Jerusalem. Uh, so those are kind of our proof text verses. You've got a screenshot now. If you want to back up that video, you know, do a little screen grab with your phone or screenshot sh- uh, it so that you can go look up those verses for yourself. But that will be important as we dive yeah. into other clips. Uh, any hey, other thoughts uh, before gonna, we dive into the next one? Yep. Really, uh, really quick. Uh, I would say uh, even looking at the scripture, Second Peter 3, 15 and 16, Paul's letters, Peter calls scripture, and he describes some of them as hard to understand. So if even some of the scripture, God's written revelation is hard to understand, that already defies what they've said. They've said that if, hey, if God speaks, it's very clear. Well, is it really clear? Because some of it's hard to understand. Now, we believe in the clarity or the perspicuity of scripture, that it's clear enough for us to be saved and sanctified, to know what God requires of us to be holy. That doesn't mean that all the finer points of doctrine in scripture are perfectly clear, else we'd all agree But uh, on everything. But uh, so that would be one. And then here's another one. Hey, it's Christmas season. Might as well bring this one up. The incarnation. Jesus is the word of God. And when the word of God became flesh, where were the Pharisees? Where were they? Well, they were uh, telling the the Magi uh, shortly after Jesus' birth, probably when Jesus was a toddler. Uh, they were telling the Magi, oh, um, uh, if uh, actually, so Magi approached King, King calls them, you know the story, Matthew chapter two. And uh, so where is the Messiah to be born? Oh, in Bethlehem. Uh, and they quote Micah 5.2. They know the scripture. They know what the scripture says, but they don't actually go to Bethlehem to behold the word made flesh. And so point being, when the word became flesh, many people missed the word. Many people misunderstood him. God comes to us in ways that are easy to miss. And uh, and it's very easy to miss the word of God. That was true of Jesus. And it's true of uh, many of his forms of revelation. Uh, so those would be a few things that uh, that I would add in there. I think it's also important to note here, they took one argument that we had, and that was it. They didn't look at the rest of the content we have to prove the point that you made in that clip. Um, They're just picking and choosing things that they want to deal with, but even then, I don't know if they're going to make their case clearly, which we're going to prove here in just a minute. I I have one more thing. I meant to say this one too. Uh, Acts 21 for uh, Josh, you, you put that one on the screen a minute ago. They urged... Uh, in the spirit, or they said through the spirit that Paul wasn't supposed to go to Jerusalem. We know from Acts 19 and 20 that Paul was clearly communicated to by the Holy Spirit over and over again that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. Continuationists have a great response on that. I've never heard a good cessationist response to that. That was a missed prophetic revelation. Whether you use the language of prophetic or not, some kind of communication from God was somehow missed. Acts 21.4. I would challenge you guys to respond to that. Uh, okay, so um, Josh, let's keep uh, let's keep playing these Clip clips. Two. Cool. Yep. Yeah. So, but they have to do this, right? I mean, charismatics today have to do this because they're they're constantly saying, "Well, I feel like the Lord is trying to tell us." You know, I really feel like if you took the word "feel" out of their vocabulary, mm-hmm. they couldn't communicate. But there's nowhere. I mean, seriously, you know, I feel like the Lord is trying to tell. There's absolutely no example of that anywhere in Scripture, Old or New Testament. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I get where they're going with it. Um, and 
I, I think it's just an overly narrow um, kind of expression of like how we how we use words. When somebody says, I feel like the Lord is saying at or saying this or that, true, that expression isn't found in the Bible. And, uh, and I don't have a problem with trashing that expression. That's not how I communicate it. But when someone else says something with, those, with that kind of language, I don't feel ready to call them a false prophet or to say that hey, that's like a terrible thing. I don't think so. Uh, I would say language is flexible. They're trying to say, my sense is that God is saying dot, dot, dot. It's like saying it seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit. There you go. So, well, there is a text where the, that's sort of similar to feeling. It seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit. That's but Acts 15, 28. I, I think there's also something that's worth noting here is um, the there are varying kinds of revelation. And so if you're going to give a prophetic word, it should be with the strength in which that revelation came. Not all revelations have the same level of intensity. Uh, we We have this example that Josh just mentioned, it seemed like. But then you have other passages like Peter fell into a trance. That's a far more intense experience. I imagine in that case, he definitely knew that God was speaking to him. He didn't know what it mean, meant though until later. And so I think that's also also common. And so when it comes to the, how words are delivered, it actually makes sense that in some cases you may say stuff like it feels like or it seems like. And in other cases you go, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Or in other cases you go, I fell into a trance and here's what God said. Uh, I think the type of revelation that a person gets is how they often should and uh, I would recommend communicate it. I think the other thing about the I feel like, Justin, just to respond to this a little bit more, um, I think it's actually in accordance with 1 Corinthians 14 that people are doing this. They're trying to leave room for the prophet prophecy to be judged with and be willing to take responsibility if it's wrong. Uh, and I think that's actually quite permissible. Um, within that framework. Yeah, that's right, because a prophet's supposed to give a word and the others are to weigh and judge what's being said. So just because someone is saying something, they shouldn't necessarily be saying it with like uh, absolute authority uh, because that is supposed to be judged and weighed amongst the community. In fact, Samuel Rutherford, uh, one of the... uh, uh, Scottish Presbyterians suggested in his fourfold uh, way to judge a prophetic word, by the way, Reformed Presbyterian said this, um, uh, that, that that prophet shouldn't believe that their words are equal to scripture. They should submit these words and they should be humbled through the weighing and testing of those prophetic words. So um, we would just agree with Sam Rutherford. We would agree with the Apostle Paul and others to say, maybe we shouldn't speak kind of authoritatively, hey, I know that God is saying this, but rather submit that word to now the collective community who's been given the spirit of prophecy on your sons and daughters. And now that we can all weigh and test what's being said in accordance with 1 Corinthians 14, 29 and 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Uh, any other thoughts? It sounds like Roundtree is looking through a commentary to see if it seems right to me, us in the spirit uh, is actually what that's saying. He's checking his Hebrew sources and commentary that I pulled out. You mean Greek. Right? In this is that case, you would be Greek. Greek. <laughs> uh, obviously, but, no, obviously, actually, <laughs> y'all are both like it's Greek, idiot. I, actually, <laughs> I was looking up a different uh, Greek word for First Corinthians fourteen twenty nine, and uh, weighing or discerning or judging what is said. The other prophets are to uh, discern that. So uh, here is Grudem's commentary on the. Uh, on the Greek word Michael, for does, that. Does Grudem know Greek? Does Grudem know Greek? I just want to make sure. Yes, he does. He does, he does know Greek. We don't, uh, obviously. Obviously. Well, uh, 
Paul's use of the Greek word uh, diakrino helps us to define more precisely the kind of evaluation that could be done. Uh, then in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 31, we read, if, if we correctly evaluated ourselves, we should not be judged. The idea is one of conscientiously weighing one's own attitudes, actions, carefully sorting and evaluating them and determining which are right and which are not. This sense of making distinctions or carefully evaluating uh, would make the Greek word an appropriate word in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, 29, appropriate that is if Paul had meant to speak of a process whereby every member of the congregation would listen carefully and evaluate each statement, distinguishing what he or she felt to be good from the uh, good from the less good, what was thought to be helpful from the unhelpful, what was perceived to be true from the false. If Paul meant that the Corinthians were to judge whether each speaker was a true or false prophet, he probably would have used some other word, not diacrino, uh, diacrino, I think is how you pronounce it, but probably uh, crino. Uh, this is the new, this is the term the New Testament prefers when speaking of judgments where there are only two possibilities, such as guilty or not guilty, right or wrong, true or false. He goes on to say, and quotes many scriptures uh, and references to that, uh, that word to say uh, that, that when Paul commands us to discern or weigh or judge prophecies, it's, uh, it's, not primarily to discern whether this person is a true or a false prophet that perhaps needs to be excommunicated from the church, but rather to discern away the prophecy, to sift through uh, what part of this revelation was truly from God, 100%, 90%, 1%, what, what and, um, and what part might, might not be from God. And, uh, and so that's uh, Wayne Grudem's take on that Greek word. So uh, yeah, Miller, he, that's good. he knows a, a fair amount about the Greek language. I like it. I like it. We should play clip number three. This is where uh, Roseboro is invited on. We've heard from Justin up into this point. Uh, and Chris has been asked to come on because I, I suppose Justin sees him as like a Hebrew expert. So let's play clip number tres. And granted, this is a novel interpretation of a novel argument I've not heard before, but it seems to me that this is uh, well-intentioned, though it may be uh, sincere. They very well may be. I have no doubt. That is not the correct video. Let me play this one. See, if it's like, obviously, this is mislabeled. Now, I want to interrupt here for a quick station break because I know what's going to happen. People will hear that. Charismatics will hear that. Watching also, this video, say, not hey, wait, the wait, right wait. video. Jeez, Louise. Here, let me just go to my files and I'll just pull it over. And clip three. Oh man. Here we go. Okay, well, first of all, I would note that uh, it's clear that Michael Roundtree doesn't know Hebrew. Uh, the reason why is because there's an important word in that part of the sentence that he hasn't really keyed in on. And so let me read it to you in Hebrew. Uh, so in, in English, it says, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord in Hebrew. It's uh, Yahweh all right. And the who there at the very end of that sentence should be translated as this. So then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh. The question is, what is the this referring to? What is, this? is it referring to the fact that that Jeremiah was going, you know, I think God was talking to me. I, you know, I, it, it, it felt like he was, but I'm not exactly sure. No, <laughs> that's just nonsense. And the reason why it's nonsense is because of several things. But if we go back into verse one, note, notice the specificity. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh in the 10th year of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, which was the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah, the prophet, was shut up in the court of the guard that 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 was in the palace of the king of judah so you're gonna know when when jeremiah gets a, a word of the lord there's specificity as to where he was when it occurred we we can actually pin it to a particular year and if you know the ancient city of jerusalem you can even probably figure out where he exactly was and so when jeremiah says here that the word of yahweh came to me behold hanamael the son of shalom your uncle will come to you and say by my field that is at anathoth when hanamael shows up 
the Hebrew phrase here, then I knew this was uh, the word of Yahweh. The better way to translate it, because that, that's kind of an idiom in Hebrew, the way he's saying it, he's, and, and this is the right way to, to understand it. Then I knew that this was what Yahweh was talking about, is how we would say it in English. Right. And by the way, I have a very good um, commentary that backs me up on this. If you're not familiar with the Kiel Dalich uh, commentary, probably one of the best Old Testament commentaries, it stood the test of time. And this thing is still just considered like one of the best commentaries that you can get on the Old Testament. And uh, and they write regarding uh, Jeremiah 32, 8, it says, what had been announced to the prophet by God took place. Hanamael came to him and offered him his field for sale. From this, Jeremiah perceived that the proposed sale was what the word of the Lord, i.e. that the matter was appointed by the Lord. So they are even understanding the same the same idea because of the way the Hebrew works is that wasn't it wasn't that Jeremiah was wondering if that was really God talking or anything like that. So what Michael Roundtree did there, he he isogeted. He read in his own bad theology about prophecy into that text, hijacked that last sentence without even consulting the Hebrew, without consulting good commentaries, and then basically said, "Oh, this is an example of what I experience when you know God sometimes talks to, talks to me, and it's a feeling, or it might be words, or a sentence, or whatever." And and then later I'll get confirmation. So what he did is he read his own bad theology into it. But instead, the reality is is that the key word there is who. Then I knew this what that when Hanamael showed up. That this was the word of Yahweh. This is what Yahweh told me would happen. That right. and so it, the, the confirmation wasn't that. Oh, that was finally the word of the Lord. No, no. Oh, now I know. No, instead it was. Oh, this is exactly what Yahweh told me would happen. That's the best way to look at that text. And checking a good commentary or learning Hebrew would help you a lot in that regard. Jeez, Michael, check a good commentary. Why don't you? So I have placed Chris Roseborough's. Um, how did I say it? Uh, the more correct Roseboro Hebrew version. I've placed that next to the ESV, okay? And as Chris has more accurately translated, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. He translated, then I knew that this was the word of Yahweh. It's a very complex translation. Uh, only those who know Hebrew can see the difference between the ESV and Chris's more accurate version. Uh, uh, I, I digress. Um he, he argues that in Hebrew, that this is referring to the fulfillment. I knew that this this thing was what the Lord was talking about, uh, rather than I knew that the word of the Lord was, in fact, the word of the Lord when this had happened. Uh, again, uh, the Hebrew is an, as ambiguous as the English. Is he referring to the event that was taking place, or is the this referring to that I knew that it was the word of the Lord? Uh, again, I think our argument stacks up better than Chris's in this when you actually look at the Hebrew, oddly enough. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, saying is is the meaning of is, or this is the meaning of this, um, it, it really I don't think it really helps your argument. Um, anyway, uh, n n nevertheless, we'll dive into it. Which one of you wants to pick it up after Let that? Me, I'll start with this because Michael's going to be able to give a more technical explanation to this. But I want to just comment on the fact that he's bringing in his Hebrew scholarship to make his case. And I think there's um, – man, I'm not saying Chris is doing this, but, but I think there is a tendency with those who want to win an argument to talk in superior language or come from a superior place of knowledge. And when I hear this, the well, clearly Michael hasn't consulted the Hebrew. I go, watch out. This feels like that. Um, this feels like somebody who's appealing to their massive knowledge and speaking over pe other people's heads uh, so that they can win an argument and shut them down. Uh, the good news is, is we didn't have to be shut down because we have other people that we know that know Hebrew perfectly fine. In fact, we know one person in particular who's a lexicographer. And so we got to consult him, and, and Michael's going to tell you about some of that. But the other thing I'll mention about this, and this is something Jack Deere used to say to us, when people uh, appeal to the Hebrew, they're usually doing two things 
or appeal to the Greek. They're usually doing two things. They're de facto putting themselves in the position of expert, making themselves more knowledgeable than those who translated the scriptures to begin with. Uh, a team of scholars that translated those scriptures to begin with. But then secondarily, they're sending the message subtly that you can't really understand what the scriptures teach unless you know these languages like I do. And that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. And man, again, Michael's going to do a good job of knocking this one out of the park. Um, but but he said, you know, if you reference some good commentaries, you'd know this. We, we Like, you don't know that we didn't. You only quoted one commentary that agrees with you, which granted, it's a good commentary. We've stated this already. But we just quoted John Calvin just now. Like we we just we sourced twelve other commentaries that that agree. We, we've we've looked at lexicographers. We've talked to Hebrew scholars. They disagree with your point. I, I, I don't know what to say, man. It, it sounds like you're assuming you're appealing to kind of your own authority, your own Hebrew scholarship, the one commentary that you read, and saying therefore everyone else, you know, they don't know Hebrew and they don't read commentaries. It's it is assuming a position by calling this group novel by by saying that you guys are wackadoodle false prophets by going out of your way to say you didn't read a good commentary what you're doing is you're you're doing an ad hominem argument which you guys are very good at you guys are really good at attacking the character and integrity of people going after you know things about you know uh, their intellect right and and not grappling with the text alone fortunately in this argument uh, you know uh, justin doesn't just do ad hominem he tosses it over to roseborough for some exegetical work and i will once again state plainly that that can be an interpretation but again the vast majority of commentaries that we've looked at and lexicographers that we've spoken to disagree with you on this point. So I don't think you should appeal to authority on this issue. I don't think you should be attacking Roundtree's character as if he didn't read fancy books and do any fancy book learning. Uh, So anyway, I I just want to say that on the front end. This is ad hominem. They're very, very good at this. And we should not confuse that for an actual biblical argument. Absolutely. Okay. Well, where to begin? We actually know a lot of Hebrew scholars and Chris, I actually never claimed to know Hebrew, and uh, I don't know Greek either. I mean, I know how to use the tools, and so I'm not going to like flex my muscle and pretend I'm like uh, a scholar. I'm actually not a scholar. I don't care. Uh, I love Jesus, and I love his word, uh, but here's what I will say. You know, I, I was discipled by a lexicographer for, I mean, just closely for 11 years, Um and we've talked intimately about all of these things and gave me all the the right resources at my fingertips to be able to look these kinds of things up. Uh, and I do it every week, whatever I'm preaching or whatever we're doing, one of these shows. Um, and I would also say that, uh, you know, being a Lutheran, I know that you must like Augustine. And as it turns out, Augustine, or as Josh likes to say, Augustine, it's cool either way, potato, potato. Um, he didn't know Greek. He didn't know Hebrew. Are, are you going to say that, like, is Chris Rosebro uh, a better scholar than Augustine was because uh, Chris knows Hebrew? Uh, I'm going to go with probably not. <laughs> hey, Josh has the bust for Augustine. Right he there. didn't know Greek, and he this guy. Jesus, <laughs> no, no, he laments it in his confessions, and so uh, he confesses it. He he confesses it. <laughs> okay, so uh, we we can go with. Uh, we'll start with Jack. Jack pointed to. He says. Uh, for all the Hebrew scholars, uh, this is the definitive work of like for understanding advanced Hebrew grammar. Gassinius' uh, Hebrew Grammar, second edition, was published in, in 1910 and uh, has been around and is still definitive. And, um, and here's what it says about the word who. 
who is normally a person or thing already mentioned or known. This argues in favor of our interpretation because the event that is Hanamel offering the field is not a person or thing, which who normally refers to a person or thing. So if you're going to quote the Hebrew as an argument against us, then you should understand what the definitive work on Hebrew means actually points in the opposite direction. Uh, it continues. So we, uh, or, or this is actually, we continue. This is our my personal note I made here. We would contend that the thing already mentioned or known is the word of the Lord mentioned three times in these verses, not the event, which would have been an unusual usage of who. Uh, the other thing that you find in Gesenius's volume is that uh, even though the English translations for Jeremiah 32 eight do typically uh, translate who in that verse as this, uh, the word is normally normally translated as that. And Jack uh, talked to me about the difference between the far demonstrative pronoun, which is that in English, and the near and, and who in Hebrew. Uh, and then the near demonstrative pronoun, which is ze in Hebrew, which is normally translated this in English. And so the translators did opt for this. Normally, the translation for ze, not who, although there is sometimes, again, like we said earlier, language can be flexible. I just wonder if if Chris was going to go so far as to dive into the Hebrew word, why didn't he why didn't he go there? Instead, what we heard him say was, hey, the ESV says, uh, interprets it as, then Jeremiah knew this was the word of the Lord. But here's my ver my translation. This was the word of the Lord. I, I struggle to understand why he's quoting Hebrew at all. I, I don't understand. The one other time he brings the Hebrew into play is when he says this. Um, he says, when Jeremiah says here that the word of the Lord came to me, behold, Hanamael, uh, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you and, and say, by my field, uh, etc. Uh, it, he says, uh, I, then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Chris says, the better way to translate it, and, and already, and this is what Jack taught me in those 11 years, that anytime you hear somebody say the better way to translate it, um, just, just let your red flags go up. Because modern translations have teams of scholars who have lived in the languages for many years. So when somebody says, this is the better way to translate it, we're to take their opinion over teams and teams and teams of scholars for all these various different translations. He says, the better way to translate it, because that's kind of an idiom in Hebrew, the way he's saying it, and this is the right way to say it. Uh, and this is the right way to say it. Um, in other words... Uh, the idiom that he's talking about, at least it seems in my interpretation of Chris's clip, is that this is the word of the Lord was something like this fulfilled the word of the Lord, or this is what the word of the Lord was really about. And, and so his claim there is there's a figure of speech called an idiom, basically a saying, a, a, a saying in Hebrew that this was the word of the Lord should really be translated as this, is, this was really about the word of the Lord, or this fulfilled the word of the Lord, this event. And I'm going to say that's wrong. Okay. I'm going to say that's wrong. Uh, here's another thing. I, I told you Jack taught me how to uh, find the resources. Jack led me to this book 15, uh, 10 years ago, probably more than that. And um, it's called Figures of Speech in the Bible by E.W. Bullinger. This book is awesome. If you're reading through the Psalms, so many figures of speech in there. It's amazing. It references probably 
every single figure of speech in the Bible. I looked up Jeremiah 32, 8 on idioms to see what do we find? Because Chris's claim is, hey, we need to translate this differently because it's an idiom. No other modern translator found it this way. The scholars who live in this didn't view it this way. But I, Chris Rosebro, the authority on it, have found this to be an idiom, and it should really do this, which supports my interpretation. Uh, and I looked up E.W. Bullinger's figure speech, and as it turns out, Jeremiah 32.8 appears nowhere in his book. It's not just that there's not an idiom. There's no figure of speech there at all. And I looked up the section on idioms. I found uh, he categorizes 11 biblical idioms and 35 subcategories of those uh, of those 11 within those 11 in totality and in all of that never once does he mention jeremiah 32 8 and racking my brain i could not think of any time in all of scripture where that's an idiom and so chris rosebro seems like he's, he's throwing around hebrew word and idiom and should really be translated guys my red flags go up it sounds to me like you said i packed my bad theology into the text now i'm gonna say humbly chris i believe you've done that because uh, so far, you've gone against the Hebrew grammar that you try to use in your favor. You've said an untrue statement about a Hebrew idiom. You've used one commentary from the 1800s to support yourself, but not the many others. And, and I'm saying your, your, your interpretation is fair, and you might be right on that interpretation. But I'm going to say all the other evidence seems to go against it. And we will get more to that. I think now... Guys, uh, it certainly doesn't give him the confidence to speak in the tone and the authority that he is speaking in. No, definitely not. He knows Hebrew and he's it's it's totally plausible that that is an interpretation, but he's actually speaking with a level of confidence that betrays his ignorance. Like he clearly doesn't know that the Hebrew doesn't say that because all of the lexicographers like uh, uh, Jack Deere, you know, who've, who've reached out to us said that's not what this means. When we reached out to Carmen Imes, who again knows Hebrew uh, and very well, we said, hey, Carmen, like, what do you think about this? Right. And she commentaries. goes, you, you're well within your grounds to suggest that that is exactly what is happening here. D- do you want to read that quote from Carmen, Michael? Um, sure. It, it's this is what happens though when people go out of their way to be like i'm right i'm right i'm right how could you possibly be wrong and everyone who disagrees with me clearly doesn't know hebrew and can't read commentaries you're you're overshowing your hand you're overplaying strength you're wrong you know like you're you're displaying your ignorance on the situation when you do things like that um here let me let me toss it over to roundtree and he can quote this comment sure um so Carmen Imes, who writes commentaries, uh, I think she's working on Exodus right now. Like she lives in the Hebrew. That uh, one's written in Hebrew, says, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> she I'm just says, I think, I think you and Josh are reading it right. So Chris says we're wackadoodles who clearly don't understand how to read the Bible. But Carmen Imes says we're right. Okay. And he's probably going to say, well, yeah, but she's a woman teacher, so she can't read the Bible. And then it's going to go ad hominem again. Women can't read but, Hebrew. Yeah, they can't read. So I think you and Josh are reading it right. She says, I have no idea why your critic would say that the Hebrew leads in a different direction. Seems like their theology of divine words is driving their interpretation. Hmm. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Isn't that what we were accused of doing? Weren't we accused of eisegesis in this? Like we have to have it that way, even though we have a lot of other scriptures that we've already displayed on the show today and in other episodes that we've done. But we're the ones guilty of eisegeting the text, right? Right, right. So then she jumps on, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, the word who that we've been talking about. And she notes uh, that this, that who in Hebrew, she says, which is masculine 
and word of the Lord is also masculine, so there's no reason it couldn't refer back to it. And, uh, and in fact, she goes on at the end to say, it seems to me that the repetition of word of the Lord in verses six through eight strongly connects them. You're on solid ground. And then she says, feel free to use my name in your response. Uh, so there you go, Carmen. Thank you. Carmen, Thank you, Carmen. Shout out. And, um, we don't need to know Hebrew because Carmen and Jack do. <laughs> but in reality, <laughs> you know, hey, I would love to know Hebrew. I would love to know Greek. Oh, sure. And and I think someday I, I uh, very well could apply myself to uh, to learn those languages. I, I do think God's gifted me in languages, but uh, I haven't done it yet. And um, but neither here nor there. I just don't think you can flex your muscles and say the Hebrew, the Hebrew, the Hebrew without explaining why the Hebrew defends your point. Um, so I, I think that's what Chris does. And, uh, and I would say that, uh, in order to really decide what this means, what it's referring to in Jeremiah 32, eight, we have to look, uh, we have to look at the context. Um, Josh and Michael, why don't we walk through those six reasons we put why our interpretation is the more likely, because we do admit Chris's interpretation is fair and maybe it's the right one. And I would just appeal for us to have theological humility here. Like, um, for instance, Thomas uh, Schreiner, uh, one of my fave scholars, he's a cessationist. I love that in his book about cessationism, he says, I might be wrong. I think that's a theologically humble thing to say. And so um, we're giving our interpretation in Jeremiah 32. It's possible that it's wrong because I think that Chris's interpretation is fair. But uh, whenever we're deciding on an interpretation, and this is what I do when I'm interpreting the scripture, preparing for a message, and there's an unclear part of the passage, I write every reason for both sides, why this side and why that side might be right. And so here are our reasons for why Jeremiah 32, 8, we think, leans toward our interpretation. And our interpretation, again, is that when Jeremiah says, then I knew that this was the word of the Lord, we believe that that was confirming the prophetic word that he had in verse six, when he said, the word of the Lord came to me, that when the events played out, then it's like, then I knew, uh, Again, to use my words from that clip, then he knew that 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 this was the word of the Lord um, because God confirmed it. So why do we think that's the right interpretation? Which of you guys wants to take number one? I'll do number one. Um, it would have been very hard to believe that God wanted him to buy a field from prison when the Babylonians were so soon to seize the land. Okay, let me say a couple things about this on, on top of that comment there. But uh, when you think about Moses, he encounters God in the burning bush. He asked the Lord, how do I know these things will happen? The Lord's response was, you'll know when you and all of Israel are here on this mountain worshiping me. There is times when God asks people to do things and they go, that can't be God. Uh, I don't know God. Uh, how, how do I know this is going to happen? Even Moses, who spoke with God face to face, unlike Jeremiah, who didn't speak with God face to face, uh, Moses was that way. And yet he still found himself going, oh, I don't know. I mean, this is dangerous. Have you met Pharaoh? I mean, there's that that nervousness that he has. And I, I think this is another reason why God would actually need to give Jeremiah another confirmation to confirm that this really was God saying to do this. And if you, if you know that Babylon is coming in to destroy, and this is the second reason, you would actually probably want a lot of confirmation that you're actually to go purchase this field, especially if Babylon's to come in and, snatching and, everything up, right? So you've got... Yeah, like You've us. got this. We all need like, this. Like Gideon, right? Like Gideon is hanging out in this wine press, and the angel of the Lord appears to him. But what does he do? He puts out a fleece. Like he needed more confirmation. Like he 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 
put more like, man, was that God looking for confirmation from the Lord that this is for sure what God wanted him to do. So here there is this kind of claim that God is, uh, thus says the Lord, go and buy this field. Why buy that field? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to go buy that field. Why, why would I go do that? And, and then when his cousin comes to him to sell him that field, he knew it was the word of the Lord. So second reason is he would probably need extra confirmation. Right. Yeah. And then even the fact that it says, then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. And it doesn't say then they knew that it was the word of the Lord. In context, Hanamel uh, or Hanamael offering to buy that field, uh, or sorry, sell that field. This was an act, and we see this throughout the scripture. It was a prophetic sign. Like Josh, you mentioned the fleece uh, in the book of Judges, I think it's chapter six. And uh, we see these kind of prophetic signs, you know, like Hezekiah sees the shadows walk back, and that's a prophetic sign, or, uh, you know, the uh, even the, the, the virgin birth, which... Uh, was the, the the virgin birth which Matthew quotes in the New Testament and so in its original context was associated with a uh, with a prophetic sign there was kind of like a near and a far term fulfillment we don't have time to get into it but prophetic signs confirm the truth of a prophetic word that's what they do they point to the reality of the prophetic word so the question is who needed this reality who needed to understand this reality who who, who was the sign pointing to well, I think it definitely was for the population because it was Jeremiah's way of saying, like in the broad scheme of things, like, hey, the Babylonians are going to take us. Everything's, you know, like it, it's going downhill really fast, but I'm going to buy this field because it's a prophetic sign that there's actually hope we're going to come back after 70 years. This, and so this was Jeremiah's sort of like act of faith. And, and so, yes, it was a prophetic sign for everybody else because Jeremiah, who's been prophesying doom and destruction, is now prophesying hope. But the fact that he uses the language of, of then I knew, not then they knew or not then we knew, but then I knew that it was the word, word of the Lord, suggests that the sign was as much for Jeremiah, who's wasting away in prison and who is, uh, is about to be, uh, you know, Babylonians are sieging and all of this. It's a, it, the language of I knew suggests the sign was as much for him as it was for them. So let's uh, let me just do a quick recap of those points. You know, one and two. Uh, God wanted him to buy the field. When people babbling on about to seize it, it would make sense that he would need another confirmation. Was point two, point three? We talked about uh, uh, then I knew suggests that there was a sign uh, for Jeremiah in Jerusalem. It was for the rest of Jerusalem. Uh, point four uh, was what we kind of already mentioned from Carmen Imes that six and eight are strongly connected with the phrase word of the Lord. Uh, five, uh, the this and the word of the Lord are both masculine in Hebrew. Uh, that clearly connects them. So that's one, two, three, four, and five. Uh, when do you want to pick up six? Yeah, actually, like, guys. Go for it, Michael. I'm going to make it five because I don't think reread. I don't think six is actually that great of a point. Okay, let's great. Okay, five. let's let's just push through it then. Do y'all want to watch the next clip? I mean, we basically responded, I think, to some of the Jeremiah stuff already. Um, we have yeah. the quotation <laughs> about Samuel and how we're not allowed to use Samuel anymore. Uh, and then clip six, where he kind of goes out of his way to call us all wackadoodles. Do, do y'all want to watch clip? Just skip to clip five. I'm good with skipping to clip five, but I, I think I'll say one more thing. Uh, he accused me of eisegeting the text, which Carmen Imes says it appears he's doing. But I'll go further and I'll say Chris eisegeted, eisegeted my clip uh, because he says that I used my own experience, a feeling or a dream or whatever to read my bad theology into it. 
And I would just say, where did I mention my own experiences? I actually didn't. Uh, there was a part of the clip where I, where I say at the beginning of it that, you know, we don't know how the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Maybe it came through a dream. Uh, maybe it came uh, through a vision or through some other, other means. Maybe it was the audible voice of the Lord. We don't know how it came. But that wasn't me reading my experiences into it. That was me observing how God speaks all throughout the Bible and saying, we don't know which form of those speakings throughout the Bible, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So Chris eisegeted my clip as well as the text. So let's go to clip five, Josh. Cool. I, instead of clicking one of these links and accidentally showing the wrong clip, I'm just going to drag the video file over. Okay. Well, first of all, I would note that uh, it's clear that Michael Roundtree doesn't know Hebrew. Uh, the reason how did I do this? What, man, geez, Louise, it is painful. Okay, here we go. Here's the session break. This is supposed to be clipped. Now, forward. I want to interrupt here for a quick station break because I know what's going to happen. People will hear that. Charismatics will hear that watching this video and they'll say, wait, wait, wait a minute. You can't say that because Samuel, Samuel in the Old Testament, God called Samuel and Samuel didn't know it was God. He didn't know what God was saying. All right, so this is from 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, for context going back before, but uh, Hannah, you remember Hannah was praying to God, to Yahweh, for a son, desperately wanted a son, and God granted her request and gave to Hannah and her, and her husband, Elkanah, uh, their firstborn son, Samuel. And so uh, out of gratitude for God granting her request, Hannah and Elkanah uh, dedicated Samuel to Yahweh, and right after Samuel was weaned, so he was probably maybe even three years old, three, four years old, tops, uh, they gave Samuel to Eli, the priest, and Eli basically raised Samuel, and uh, as he grew, taught him how to be a priest, taught him how to minister to God, to Yahweh, and when Samuel was, uh, most people say probably 12 years old, and we don't know that for sure, but uh, the text does say a young boy, so he may have even been younger than 11 or 12, but when he was a young boy, God called him. Now, let's look at this for context. It's found in 1 Samuel chapter 3. I want to show this to you. Verse 1, now the young boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh before Eli. And word from Yahweh was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. So this verse, this opening verse of 1 Samuel chapter 3, gives us two clues as to why Samuel initially did not know that it was God calling him. Number one, he was a boy, a young boy at that. I mean, he may have been well under 11 or 12 years of age. So, um, so he was a young boy. And notice the text says that a word from Yahweh was rare in those days and visions were infrequent. So this is like most of the time in the Old Testament where God was not speaking. A word from God was rare. Visions were infrequent. So nobody was expecting to hear God speak. That was just not expected, uh, nor should it have been. It was a very rare thing. So when God called Samuel and said his name, Samuel, then Samuel heard God clearly, knew exactly what he said. He called his name. He just didn't initially know that it was God. So he ran into Eli, thinking it was Eli calling him, and said, here I am. And Eli said, no, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. And so this happened three times. And on the third time, then it dawned on Eli, wait a minute, okay, this is God calling Samuel. And so Eli told Samuel that. And notice too, in verse 7, here's another clue for us in verse 7. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, nor had the word of Yahweh yet been revealed to him. Samuel's just a little boy. He didn't know Yahweh yet. So there was no reason for us to, and there is no reason for us to expect that Samuel would have known that it was God calling him his name. It would have been very natural for Samuel to assume that it was coming from Eli because he was the only person there. Uh, so Samuel did not know Yahweh. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to Samuel. But even at that, even at that, with all that going on, he was a young boy. A word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And uh, Samuel did not yet know Yahweh for the word of God had not yet been revealed to him. Even with all of that going on, Samuel still knew exactly what was said. Samuel. No no uh, uncertainty about what was being said. Samuel knew exactly what was said. 
He just didn't know initially who it was that said it. So sorry to my charismatic friends, you cannot use Samuel as an example for what you hear today that is common in the charismatic movement. It is standard in the charismatic movement. I feel like the Lord is trying to tell us such and such. Sorry, folks, just doesn't wash. In fact, it does wash, as we've already stated, but also we are going to continue to use First Samuel because uh, you're, I think, confusing two of our arguments, which is makes sense. And I don't mean to be mean on this. This sounds a little mean. I think you guys are confused because you've said the opposite things in the same video. So if you go watch the 20-minute video, you will hear Justin and Chris both state there is no confusion on what, it, uh, what he is saying, nor is there any confusion on who it is that's saying it. Justin said that at the beginning of the video. Uh, also, Chris said, when God speaks, it's unmistakable that it's God. They both stated this. And then, then they go, well, but, but did, oh, you know, Samuel did actually not know that it was God. So um, that's not on his fault, though, because he was a kid. So we have two different arguments here. And I think Justin is confusing these two arguments. Justin uh, is saying that you'll always know that it's God and that when God speaks, you'll always understand it. Well, we argue from 1 Samuel chapter 3 and John chapter 12, for example, that you don't always know that it's God. For example, in John chapter 12, God is speaking from heaven. I have glorified my name. I will glorify it again. Some said, and clearly John believed it was God. Some said an angel had spoken, and yet others who were standing by had thought it had thundered. So here's the audible voice of God. and Some people didn't know who was speaking. Samuel's another example. He heard the audible voice of the Lord, thought it was Eli, but didn't understand it. So that's that's premise one. We don't always know when God is speaking. And then the other one uh, is that God sometimes speaks in kind of more cryptic or uh, uh, difficult to understand ways. We've referenced all of these verses. Why not toss this screen up here again? Uh, God doesn't lie, right? These are the verses for God doesn't lie, but God speaks at times to his people and these people don't know that it's God who's speaking, right? Uh, God often gives revelation. It's sometimes cryptic and hard to understand. We've explained all this already. Uh, uh, he speaks to uh, prophets uh, and sometimes they don't know what it means what the prophetic words mean. And then sometimes prophets misapply the words. So uh, we have a completely different argument than I think he's trying to address. He's only addressing one aspect of a kind of four pronged argument. Um, so if I had to put this into like a lo- logical syllogism, uh, it would be uh, here. I have it in here somewhere. Um, logical syllogism. Major premise. God's revelation is infallible. He cannot lie. Uh, he uh, uh, he communicate what he communicates is always true. The minor premise is that uh, human understanding, interpretation, and application of God's revelation can be flawed. This is evidenced by uh, biblical examples where prophets did not fully comprehend or misunderstood or misapplied a revelation. Again, Michael quoted uh, what Second Peter: the things that Paul writes, infallible and errant. God's words, they're, they're, they're scripture, but they're hard to understand. So if revelation of God's word can be hard to understand, then certainly this cryptic kind of hard to comprehend riddles and dark sayings kind of prophecy would be hard to understand. In conclusion, therefore, uh, God's revelation itself is infallible, but the human uh, uh, engagement with it, uh, composing our understanding, interpretation, and application can be fallible and subject to error. Uh, this is also uh, contingent on interpretations of 1 Corinthians 14, 29, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, where it suggests that, yes, actual prophets, not false prophets, but prophets in the church are to speak, and yet those prophetic words are to be weighed and judged. Uh, we've kind of walked through all of that. I feel like I did a quick response. I know I mean, Miller is yeah. in the place where he's got to yeah, go. I got to go. So I wanted to burn I gotta, it quickly. I'll make one quick comment about this, but he mentions how in those days, vision, visions were infrequent. And he sort of uses that to bolster the case uh, as to why Samuel might not realize it's God. Um, I, I don't find that argument to be incredibly helpful, but also I think he's just wrong. Um, yes, 
visions were infrequent in those days, but the fact but that doesn't make visions and hearing God infrequent in a general sense. Uh, the, the fact that this is mentioned is again uh, uh, points to a um, little bit of rebellion on those days and in other days. Um, but the, the other thing is why state it? Why state that visions are infrequent if that's uh, if that's always the way it is? You don't state things that are always the norm. You state things when they're not normal. And in this case, that's what's it. Yeah, it's the exception. The reason visions were infrequent in those days is is because there was a problem. Um, But in fact, it's normative for God to speak to his people. So with that, I got to go. Love you guys. And uh, thank you for tuning in. And love you, Miller. Have a good one. My basement Um, boy. It's important to know. What does it mean uh, when you have to go and you live in the basement? It's too much um i would say for those who are watching you should go watch uh you should go sign up for the newsletter because we're releasing our document on uh responding to the cessationist documentary part one we're releasing part one that's going to be going out to all of the inboxes i think as soon as this week that's kind of our hope uh, christina's working on editing because you know my my grammar lacks integrity um so uh she's going to run through that and then we're going to send it out to everybody so it's got the cluster argument completely debunked uh, it's got you know examples of why miracles and uh and or prophecies might have been uh lacking in certain periods of time but then we also have quotes from jeremiah saying from the times of moses all the way to the present day of jeremiah that god has performed signs wonders and miracles this idea that it only happened in three periods of time or that it tapered off and you know um anyway it's just it's a bunch of bunk. There's no textual uh, biblical argument for any of those things. We've responded to all of that. You can find that uh, in uh, the newsletter. So go in, if you haven't already, in the uh, video description, register for that newsletter so you get notified. Roundtree, yeah. do you, do you want to watch this final clip? I do. Let's do clip six. Okay. Uh, clip six. If you can This find is a novel it, interpretation, of a novel argument I've not heard before, but it seems to me that this is... Uh, well-intentioned, though it may be, uh, sincere, they very well may be. I have no doubt about that. Say what? We haven't played this one yet. Okay, cool. Yeah. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. But it seems to me that this is uh, one of the ways in which charismatics today try to make room for fallible prophets and fallible prophecies. They seem like they recognize that the Old Testament prophets were held to 100% standard of accuracy, although this interpretation of Jeremiah 32 would seem to kind of run counter to that. But uh, is that is that what you think they're doing here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so you're going to note, um, one of the techniques that false teachers use is they go after clear texts that contradict their personal theologies. And so the Remnant Radio guys, they're not holding to a biblical theology. They're legitimately holding to a charismatic theology that that exists outside of Scripture. And they're trying to shoehorn in uh, their their theological system into the scriptural text, and so they have to go after uh, they have to go after like a gold standard Old Testament prophet like Jeremiah and try to bring him down to their level in order to make themselves look credible and their theology to look biblical. And so this is this it's it's a duplicitous technique. It's it's similar to what the feminists do when they uh, when they attack the Apostle Paul. So when the Apostle Paul says that uh, a woman is to remain silent in the church, what they'll do is they'll diminish the authority that uh, that Paul was speaking under. You know, so they'll they'll challenge his apostolic credentials. They'll accuse him of being the founding member of the He-Man Woman Haters Club. So the idea then is, is that those clear passages that forbid women in the pulpit and from women from holding the pastoral office, now we've made Paul the issue. And by making Paul the issue, we can smuggle in our feminist theology. In the same way, this is what these guys are doing. They're attacking a gold standard Old Testament prophet who legitimately exemplifies the fact that every single prophecy he gave came true. And he was living in a day of wingnut wackerdoodle prophets like the YouTube prophets we see today and the kind of prophet that Roundtree is and, 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 and his co-hosts. He does say that but I'm wackadoodle as well. Just it's you too, bro. Just doesn't you name too. me. Doesn't name me. Um, so here, here's what I'd say on 
on the front end of, of some of this argumentation. We've never undermined Jeremiah's integrity. We haven't impugned, we haven't ad hominemed Jeremiah in any way. We're actually just trying to explain the way prophecy works, which is sometimes we don't know it's God that's speaking to us, which again, we've already demonstrated by 1 Samuel 4 and John chapter 12. Sometimes we don't know it's God. And this is just another example of a prophet who's clearly hearing a revelation from the Lord, but doesn't know it's the Lord. Wasn't sure where that's coming from. Is that, is that his own thought? Is that from a different source? No, that in fact came from God. And he knew it after it was confirmed. We we're just making the case. That's the way that prophecy works. We're not imputing anyone's character. And, and he makes this argument that, hey, we're like the, the woman, uh, the Paul's a, so some kind of uh, he-man woman hater, right? Like that's just, that's who he is. Some kind of machismo dude. He's trying to oppress women. We're, me and Michael, I know he's comparing us to them. We're actually complementarian. Um, and in fact, we would argue that you're, modeling the liberal theology of people who walk through the Old Testament and say, well, you know, this says that women can't preach, teach, and exercise authority over men, but it doesn't really mean that. It means something else. So when we read the New Testament and it says, hey, don't forbid uh, prophecy or, you know, and, and, and don't uh, don't forbid people uh, from from speaking in tongues and, and, and don't quench the spirit, right? And don't, don't uh, despise prophecies. Like when the New Testament says that, you go through and you go, well, it says that, but it doesn't really mean that. And, and when, when Paul says, that you're bound in every gift, especially prophecy. You beat me to it. Yeah. Or admit that then, maybe. Right. Or sometimes I've even heard, well, prophecy is really just like inspired preaching. I've heard that one before too. (laughs) Right. That's (laughs) why two uh, or three have to weigh the revelation, right? Um, Is because it's preaching. But but again, I don't think they say that, but I've heard it. I've heard everything to try to get around what the Bible, uh, we think, clearly teaches with continuationism. Um, yeah, the wackadoodle thing, uh, Chris, that's just, it's out of bounds, really. It, it just is. Second uh, Timothy chapter two, the Lord's servant is not quarrelsome. Proverbs six, seven, uh, there are six things the Lord's ha- Lord hates. And of course he go he instead list seven, which is, uh, you know, right here in this book, it's a poetic device. Uh, anyway, but Proverbs chapter six right there was shedding innocent blood and telling lies and all these terrible sins, the pinnacle of them all is spreading strife among the brothers. So, uh, hey, there's a point for us to disagree, but man, can we be respectful to each other? Like wackadoodle? And to compare us to the Jeremiah, uh, the, the prophets of Jeremiah's day that, uh, that were false prophets. Now, and I know you think that we're false prophets. Uh, so you don't think that we're believers. And, and to me, I'm, I'm going to say, hey, Chris, I, I believe you're a believer. And I, I believe Justin is a believer. And I actually think you're doing some good things for the Lord. It's this ad hominem deal. It is the like, you're a wackadoodle. It's actually just out of bounds for a Christian pastor to be using those kinds of language, that kind of language. And uh, and, and so I, a Christian leader, and, and not just a Christian leader, just a Christian, Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs. And I just struggle to understand how that's helpful. I do think there there can be occasion for using strong language, as Jesus did when he called people wolves in sheep's clothing. Uh, that was very rhetorically purposeful. Uh, it it was not a, a whimsical insult uh, meant to like come after the, certain people's interpretation. He was trying to warn the people about people who are truly wolves. And if you want to use that kind of biblical imagery and, and call me wolf in sheep's clothing, whatever, I'm going to go ahead and say, 
the language of wackadoodle is out of bounds for a Christian leader. It just, it, it just yeah. is. Um, and agreeing with you, Josh, we're not trying to bring Jeremiah down to our level. We never said Jeremiah missed it. We, he has eminent credentials. He's an amazing prophet. He heard from the Lord and we never attacked him. And to describe us as duplicitous, Chris, how do you know our motives? Like, how do you know what's going on in my heart through? Uh, He's probably a prophet. He has powers that us mere mortals don't have. He knows the contents and intentions of our heart. Hey, he's probably you know uh, he's probably divined this from the Lord. I bet Chris is a secret prophet. <laughs> okay, no, I will say this because Chris does a lot of uh, YouTubing, as is Justin, as do I. There have been things I said I regretted. Maybe Chris regrets saying wackadoodle, but. But if I, I've seen his channel, he, and he hasn't does... apologized for saying that we worship a false god, that we're false teachers and false prophets. Why would he feel bad about calling? I don't us think he does. Well, I don't he think he does. Damn to hell, Roundtree. <laughs> okay, here's what I'm trying to do. First Corinthians 13. Love believes all things. I I really want to endeavor to uh, to think the very best of people. And I think love does that, but the, the evidence really is it, it's not, it's really not a one-off thing for Chris, um, to your point, the, the exact things that you just said, Josh. And then he has prophecy bingo and, and just like he ridicules people on his channel. And, and that's just not, it, it's not what we should be doing. Um, I, I wish last thing, Chris Josh, was consistent. I wish he was consistent and he would start going after all of the Lutherans in the AALC. I wish he would go after his own denomination who states publicly on their on their website, on their statement of faith and their beliefs that that God speaks today, that they believe in the gift of prophecy, his denomination, the one that he belongs to, the one that says that God still speaks today. But the only infallible revelation is the scriptures. So his own denomination claims the one that he like he signed up with. He could have joined the Missouri Synod. He could have joined a, another a, a denomination. He could, he could have he could have joined another Lutheran branch. But no, he chooses to join with a group of continuationists, a group of people who believe that prophecy is still happening today, and that, that prophecy is not infallible. He disagrees with his own and and why is it? That he wants to do response videos to, you know, uh, the remnant radio guys. Why doesn't he start in his own house? Why doesn't he you know, start in his own backyard? Clean up his own Lutheran denomination. He doesn't want to because he's inconsistent and has unjust weights. Like if there was an issue of, you know, continuationism taking place in his own church, don't you think he'd take care of that before he start doing YouTube videos for other people? No. He's inconsistent with this. He, he, he wants to get clicks. He wants to get views. Uh, I understand. We're not, we're supposed to love hopes all things, but... But I, I can't see a way how it's popular to respond to our videos, but not to to handle the own errors that are taking place in his own denomination. It's yeah. ridiculous. It's completely inconsistent. Yeah. Okay. I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm going at this hot. Okay. Listen, man, also, I, Pe I'm, I'm going to err on the same of on the side of kindness. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you're right. Like I think right. Peters also mentions, um, you know, hey, these guys probably think the Old Testament prophets are infallible, uh, and, and yet this kind of undermines their argument. Uh, we hold what is called the continuity view, uh, which says that prophecy is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the same way that we would say the book of Revelation is canonized, therefore infallible. Uh, we would say that all of the Old Testament uh, canonized prophecies are infallible, just like there were history books in the Old Testament that we lost to history, um, like a uh, 
prophet uh, Samuel the seer, Gad the prophet, Nathan the seer. These books mentioned in 1 Corinthians 29, for example, uh, these are revelations, but because they weren't canonized, one given inspired by the word of God, but also recognized as God's word in church history, it wasn't canonized. So when we talk about inerrancy of the scriptures, we're talking about everything that the church universal has acknowledged as holy scripture. That is what is canonized. We agree. Prophecies in the New Testament, prophecies in the Old Testament that were canonized are inerrant and infallible. However, in the same way that there were sons of the prophets and schools of the prophets and prophetic words that were given by Agabus's daughters that weren't written down and prophecies uh, that were given uh, when uh, Saul sent his messengers to go after uh, uh, David and, and the spirit came on his messengers and they prophesied or when Saul prophesied, these things aren't recorded. They're not canonized. So we would just affirm just like there were sons and daughters prophesying in the church of Corinth and uh, people prophesying in the Old Testament that were not recorded, we would admit that the revelation comes from God. The revelation itself is infallible and inerrant. However, it's possible that the interpretation and application of those words weren't. We've, again, done many videos on this. So no, it doesn't undermine our argument because we hold to a continuity view of prophecy, not what is the majority of charismatics view of discontinuity. Um, Anyway, we've done a ton of videos on that as well, and we'll probably do another one here come uh, next week when we're going back to our response to the cessationism documentary. Yeah. Okay, I'm done ranting, Michael Roundtree. I'm tapping <laughs> out. If you have anything else to say, um, I, I digress. I, uh, I hand just... the floor over. <laughs> uh, okay, so, um, you know, Justin at the end, uh, he said, hey, everything in the New Testament is better, better covenant, better, you know, better say or better mediator, better promises. I can't remember what all the betters were, but he's kind of going through the book of Hebrews uh, on that. And a, uh, yes, and amen to that. But then he finishes with poignantly, except the gift of prophecy. <laughs> That's where it tanked the, the more there's more power to magic eight ball than in modern prophecy. And, uh, and of course, what he's especially coming out is our theology, the, it, Josh, what you were talking about. And I don't think most, con uh, most uh, cessationists are actually aware that there are two views on this that there is a continuity view of prophecy and a discontinuity view of prophecy, which is exactly what Josh explained. And we hold to the continuity view of prophecy. And I would also say yes and amen to what Josh said, or Josh, Justin said, at the very beginning of it, everything's better. And I would say yes, including prophecy. And what makes prophecy better is its universality. Uh, Numbers 11, 29 Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Hmm, what does that sound like? It sounds a whole lot like Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 18, quoting Joel 2, 28 and 29. Uh, in the last days, uh, the Lord says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy. Do you see the connection of the spirit, the giving of the spirit and prophecy? exactly as it was in Numbers 11, where the Spirit was given temporarily. It says the Spirit was poured out on these 70 or 72 elders, depending on your manuscript, and they prophesied, but they did not do so again. A limited number of people, the leaders of Israel, a temporary experience. Moses has this longing. It's fulfilled on Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out upon all of God's people. They don't just like get a prophetic moment no, this the spirit is with us, and is and because the spirit is with us, and one of his major roles is to give revelation. Uh, then that universe universality of the prophetic spirit, if you will, Paul will call it call him in Ephesians chapter one the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Okay, the Holy Spirit. 
We've all been baptized in the Holy Spirit, and that same prophetic spirit rests upon us, manifests here as dreams and visions uh, in Acts chapter 2. And so does that mean that every Christian is a gifted prophet? Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. No, and any believer can hear from the Lord in a uh, in a way that was not universally possible in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had to go to the prophet. They had to cast the Urim and Thummim uh, that, or the lots, which were probably the same thing. Uh, they had various means. Uh, but in the New Testament, they had... Uh, we can all hear from the Lord. Like Miller quoted earlier, Acts 15, 28, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. And they made a decision together. The Holy Spirit revealed it to them. In contrast, Acts chapter one, the last story of the casting of lots in the Bible. Why? Because the spirit was poured out on Pentecost. God gave his spirit to the church. He is the spirit of revelation. And God continues speaking to us throughout the church age. We have every moment from Pentecost to the end of the age in the section of Joel 2 that Peter quotes. It's a strong argument. Peter puts a time frame on it in the last days. It's a strong argument for the continuation of the gifts. So is prophecy better? Yes. Yes, because it's not just a handful of select few prophets. All of God's people have it. And Justin and Chris, I pray that God will give you a prophetic dream. Uh, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but hey, I'd, I'd be uh, happy for that. So um Anyway, so Josh, I got on my little soapbox. Uh, what kind of response do you have, on, or what would you? I add say to we wrap it, man. I, I yeah. obviously I'm too worked up. You know, people in the, the comment section is like Josh, Josh on a bender. They're like, hey, Josh, need, he's raging over there. He needs to settle down. So I'm, I'm, I'm gonna listen to the wisdom of many counselors, and I say this is probably where I need to tap out. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm good to wrap it if you are. Yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good to wrap it again. I believe, uh, I believe Justin and Chris are brothers, and I do too. Um, and wish the very best for them, and uh, and pray that God blesses their ministry. Uh, we we think that Chris especially was really out of line in this video. We also believe he was incorrect in the assertions that he was making. We also believe that he made them uh, way too forcefully. That goes well beyond what the what the text uh, would allow for, and. Um, and so we we uh, we don't like that, and we would just uh, hope that we could have more of a of a conversation about it. And happy for you to do another video on this if you guys want. And uh, but let's just be respectful of each other. That's all I would ask. Yeah, let's pray for him. Let's end it. Let's end it praying for him. Father, sure. bless both Justin and Chris. Uh, we ask that your spirit would be upon them and use them mightily for your name and your glory. I ask that the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ Jesus would be given to them. They would know the hope of their calling. Their hearts would be enlightened. God, I ask that as they read the Bible, your words would leap off the pages to them, you know, inspire them, empower them, um, man, in their own ministries, not just on YouTube, but in their own local churches. Lord, I ask that you empower them for your ministry, that you'd bless them. Uh, Lord, I just ask for a gentleness to be given to these men. You know, I, they have such an influence. Um, and, and I, man, I really genuinely believe um, that they're wrong on these things. Uh, but Lord, if if maybe we're wrong on this, you know, uh, <laughs> which I have such a hard time believing. And I'm sure they would say on the other side too, Lord, we just humble ourselves before you. And we just ask that you would teach us your ways and that we would may walk in them. And God, I just ask that we would have... Uh, patience with one another and peace towards one another. We bless our brothers. We bless their ministry. Um, yes, Lord. And we ask your spirit to come upon them in power in Jesus name. Okay. Round tree. Ready uh, to go? Yeah. Hey, I think I would say this. Um, Justin, I, 
probably two years ago, I left something on your website and Hey, we overlook things too. Uh, and we'd love to have you on our show. We'd love to, to dialogue about this. Uh, Chris, it would, it would require, uh, like a previous conversation. Probably I can't, it would require some. probably some public repentance. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I think maybe I not think calling so. us false prophets and false teachers, worshiping a false God would be a good start. Yeah, that'd be a good start. Uh, but you know, if we could, you know, if had something like that, then we would have Chris on the show too. And uh, love to have a conversation and love to have you uh, in a non-debate, just have a conversation about why you believe in cessationism. We would totally love to do that. And uh, and so we welcome that and uh, wish blessings upon everybody. Hey, in the uh, in the description, we have a link for our newsletter and uh, really encourage you guys to sign up for that because it, it helps you understand all things Remnant Radio, what we have coming down the pike in, t- in the way of episode conferences, uh, e-courses, all, all the things. And so uh, make sure you sign up for that newsletter. And um, and so I think that's it. Josh, anything else? Am I missing anything? Like, subscribe, you know. Yeah, like, subscribe, hit that newsletter so that you get updated with all of the research notes and stuff like that from the Response to the Cessationist documentary. Uh, we will be back next Wednesday with Dr. Craig Keener responding to the cessationism documentary. I think we're probably going to end up doing more on the continuity, discontinuity with Keener uh, because I do believe that's a position that he holds. So uh, we'll be doing more of that next week. Uh, Also, Monday, we're interviewing Michael Bird on Lucanex in a bird's eye view, which I think is a pun, um, on Lucanex. So it's going to be an exciting program. You guys uh, jump in. Bird is hilarious. Bird is hilarious. He's so punny. He did a response to you, Douglas you Moo's to... commentary at ETS, and it was the most lively, interactive, like, quippy talk that's ever been given at ETS, I'm sure. Yeah, and you get an Australian accent with it, too, so hey. So good. All right, guys. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Have a great day. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.